the Askell Leadership Podcast. Hello, my name is Rob Robson and I'm the Askell Trust Leadership Consultant. Welcome to our Trust Askell Podcast and this time I'm joined by Vivian Porritt. As always, I will let Vivian tell you about her journey in education, but she is one of the leaders who has had most experience of different parts of the system. She is a leader and co-founder of Women Ed, about which you'll hear more later on. Vice President of the Chartered College of Teaching, a former head teacher, a former chair of governors, and Vivian was the Director of School Partnerships at the UCL Institute of Education. It's fair to say that Vivian has seen our education system from many angles, and she brings a fascinating view of the system in the first part of the podcast as she tells us about how she embraced the opportunities for schools to collaborate, but then saw some of the collaborative spirit replaced by unnecessary competition. In the second part of the podcast, Vivian talks about one of the things that drives her most, which is the women ed movement. As she says, there's still much to do in our sector to ensure that women and men have the chance to lead and work on an even playing field. And you'll see that she talks with eloquent passion about the necessity for women ed. Welcome, Vivian. We're delighted to have you join us today. Just could you start by telling us a little bit about your background and your experience as a leader? Um, thank you very much, Rob, and I'm, I'm delighted to be talking with you, really delighted. I was an English and drama teacher in a secondary school, all in the southeast. All my career has been in the southeast in London. Became head of drama, second in English department, head of expressive arts, head of sixth form, senior leader, deputy head teacher, head teacher in a secondary school in a little place called Shepparton in Surrey on the Hounslow borders. It was interesting given the system issues I got involved during that time as a head in the initial setting up of federations kind of forerunners to trusts and also we were awarded training school status it was called then and it only focused on initial teacher training but again that was the forerunner of teaching schools now I was then seconded to the department for education to be part of a national team of CPD advisors. And I worked in London then, across London. So that was the first time I worked with London schools. And that was a really exciting time because London Challenge had kicked off. And part of the work of being a CPD advisor in London was to connect with London Challenge and make sure that the CPD work and the London Challenge work was balancing. So that was really exciting. I loved that. Then I had to decide whether I went back into headship or not. And the acting head, who was one of the deputies there, was doing a brilliant job. And that didn't seem fair to go back at that point. So I um, was offered a job by the Institute of Education to basically continue the kind of work I was doing with the London Challenge, but for the Institute. But for two and a half years, I was doing both roles, seconded back, <laughs> seconded back to London Challenge. So I did feel a bit schizophrenic for all of that time. Um, and then I stayed at the Institute, became a head of department and a senior leader at the Institute of Education. Director for School Partnerships was my last role 
which is where you and I started to meet, because one of the aspects of that role was to be chair of governors of Regent High School in Camden, which was how we got to know each other. And I then decided to work for myself, which was the third time I'd been and had the chance to do that. And I'd bottled the previous two in my career. So I'm now a leadership consultant. I'm also um, vice president of the Chartered College of Teaching. And joyously, I'm one of the team of strategic leaders for Women Ed, which I have to say is probably one of the most joyous things I've ever had the experience of being involved with throughout my career. And I've had some a fabulous career. I'm having, I'm having a fabulous career. Absolutely, having. Yes, definitely, definitely present tense there, uh, Vivian. So you, you've seen the system from a number of different viewpoints there. You described having gone through the system uh, in what might be a sort of fairly traditional way, you know, through to deputy head and then head, head teacher. You also mentioned forming a federation. Why did you think federations were a good idea at the time? Because as you say, that was well before multi-academy trials. Yes, there was a lot of discussion in Surrey, the county council I was working for at the time, about how could schools collaborate better. And I'd been really interested when I moved into Surrey and the part of Surrey, the borough of Surrey where the school was, which, as I said, was on the London borders, that the heads did meet in that group of six secondary schools on a regular basis. And as a new head, that was absolutely brilliant for me. And it meant we always knew what we each of us could offer across our schools so that in a way we felt quite responsible that the children of Spelthorne, that borough, were served then by all the secondary schools. We, we were a team doing that, as well as working with our own schools. And gradually I learned there were those kinds of experiments going on all over Surrey. So the federation model was beginning to be explored nationally. And um, Surrey offered an opportunity for some groups of schools to you know, start piloting that and, and Spellthorn was chosen because of the work the primaries and the secondaries had been doing. But now we were going to do it as a, a all through group of schools, including the special and alternative provision schools in the borough. And we were just getting going on all of that with all of the plans when the secondment to the DfE came up. So I did regret very much not continuing with that. And the reason I was really attracted to that was because it was meant to be, how can we make a difference as a whole group? And I'm passionate about the impact in education that school leaders can have and schools can have. And that attracted me. And essentially the collaboration, because I learned a lot and I hope others were able to learn from my experience as well. So the, the system-wide collaboration was what I was attracted to there. And that's what I think is missing now, significantly missing. That brings us on to system leadership very nicely. Thank you for that introduction there, uh, Vivian. Fantastic. <laughs> what are your views on the system at the moment then? I've got views about individual people and I've got in the system and I've got views about the system. 
I think we have lost something with the model of heads of schools, executive heads, CEOs, because I think while it's fabulous that a head of school is now getting the support of an executive head, we've added that additional layer in, which means it removes the head of school from what they were trained to do. Now, in future years, that might not be a problem because heads of school may now start to get the kind of training heads of school need, as opposed to the previous training a head teacher needed, which was broader. And it's good that heads of school get that support, but I also think it means it's going to be more difficult for them to move through the system. And we've got people who've been trained to do head teacher roles, and they're not doing it if they're in trusts. So I think there's a gap for individuals there. And how do we ensure that their ongoing development is going to be what they need? I see an issue there. I see a lot of head teachers in standalone schools say to me, they're so pleased they're a head teacher in a standalone school and they're able to enact their vision, their beliefs, their purpose, their values. I think the trouble with the trust system is that it isn't collaborative. There are some trusts where it's a command and control model. I'm sure they wouldn't say that, but that's what it looks like and feels like in the model. There are other trusts that are doing brilliantly. And I've just become a member of a trust in London where I've been working with that. Some of the leaders in that school since I was at the Institute since I first went there. And I'm very happy to work with that trust because it's collaborative, it's democratic, their local governing boards mean something in their schools. And as a trust, they are committed to making a difference for the staff and the children. I think there are then some trusts that don't come across that way. They don't come across as trying to make a difference for children. They are, of course, I'm absolutely sure they feel they are, but it doesn't come across like that. And not all trusts collaborate with other trusts. So I think you've got some competition between trusts, which I don't think is helping the system at all. And I remember when the multi-academy model first came out, I was in a think piece at the time um, at the DfE, and my concern was, what about the schools no trust would want? And I regret to say those snow schools, as people call them, are in existence and they get bandied around the system or nobody, literally nobody will have them. And who is looking after those children and those members of staff? And I think there are therefore some strengths, but there are too many weaknesses for me at the moment and the system needs organising and sorting. And if I'm allowed to bring a women ed perspective in, women are being treated badly in education now. And a lot of that, you know, given the trust model is seen as a way forward in the future at the moment, then that's making things worse for women. The gender pay gap is growing. It's really bad in a lot of trusts and it's not getting any better from two years ago. So I think there's some inequality and some uh, lack of fairness and moral purpose 
around the way staff are treated. And as a head and as a system leader, if I may roughly be called that, I'm passionate the fact that while children are our purpose, the only way we can achieve that purpose and make the difference we want is with and through our staff. And if they are being treated badly and the system is really treating all staff, especially women, very badly, I think. And like with social inequity throughout the world, the pandemic is only exacerbating and highlighting the existing issues within education for us um, and making those worse. So we've got to take the chance as a system to mend those. And I don't know how at the moment the system can do something like that. Really interesting uh, reflections there, I'm really honest. We, uh, let, let's come on to Women Ed then and switch the focus away from your own perspectives and into those of, of Women Ed, if we may. Tell us what the gap in system leadership was that created the opportunity for Women Ed to be formed back in 2015, I think it was, wasn't it? It was, yes. Well, the first gaps that emerged were the underrepresentation of women in senior leadership posts. And if they're being underrepresented in senior leadership, the could be an underrepresentation in middle leadership as well, because we have to have a pipeline, which is something, ironically, it took us a little while to learn in terms of being focused on the leaders, middle leaders, senior leaders. A significant underrepresentation of women leaders, particularly in secondary schools. And, and that shocked me, really, because I remember vividly when I became a head teacher in a very conservative, with a small c, local education authority, which had its very fair share of dinosaur men. You know, the men that sat at the back of a heads conference with their feet on the table in a newspaper at the time, which I just couldn't believe when I first went there. It had its fair share of those, but there were 12 out of 15 head teachers that were new head teachers that were women at that time. So Surrey was trying to address it. I don't see that kind of determination to make that change at the moment. Surrey definitely had said our model for secondaries of majority men and women who struggle in that environment isn't working. We need to do something about it, or at least we need to be aware of it. I don't see that in the system. We didn't see that in the system, and I still don't see that in the system. And the second gap came out, which shocked me to my core, was the gender pay gap, which I'd never even heard before. There was such a thing as that. And it would not ever have occurred to me that there would be one in education, which is supposed to be, as, as I say, a, an equitable system that is striving for fairness and justice, social justice. And that gap, since that came out, has only been exacerbated by the... I sometimes wonder if there's been a, a backlash to something like that. So the underrepresentation of women isn't increasing quickly enough. It's at snail's pace, going to take a quarter of a century in secondaries to even get 50-50 male and female heads, never mind full representation. And it's going to take 
more than my lifetime before the, anything happens with the gender pay gap, because it's got worse in the last data that was coming through from the school workforce census. Worse at every category, classroom teachers, assistant heads, heads, deputy heads, all men earn more on average for all of those full-time roles in education. The few men that are in education in comparison. So 25, 26% of men are earning more than all of the other women on average in every education category. That, that can't be right, can it? That just can't be right. Those were the two gaps which, which kicked off women ed, which definitely um, were, were quite almost like catalytic converters for those of us that thought that was unfair. Thank you, Vivian. Is it, I, I'm just exploring, I think in my mind at the moment, that the reason that it's got worse, um, as you say, we, we work in a, in a system where equality is supposed to be at the top of our agenda, but it, as you say, it has got worse. Do you think there's a complacency come in to the system? in that we imagine that that kind of thing surely has been solved by now. Yes, and, and as I said, I did. <laughs> I certainly could see it improving. So I'm not sure what happened from when I became ahead to when I started seeing this data emerge. All of us did. I think complacency is maybe the wrong word. I think it's just there's so much else been going on in the education system in the last 10 years and since 2015, that people haven't been focused on it enough. We would hope that Women Ed is helping people to focus, focus on it, but we're a big system and we're not going to reach all of those, which is why it's, I'm delighted to do a podcast such as this. Because if you take ASCO members, they're school leaders. Do they know they've got a gender pay gap in education? Have they got a gender pay gap in their organisation? Why is it that in secondary schools, the majority of senior leaders are men? Why is that? And like data for students in a school, all data does is help you work out the questions you need to ask. And then you need to go and find the answers and to involve the women in your school to help you find those answers. And I, I think most men in education are, are really good men. They wouldn't be in education. So because they are, particularly in secondary, more leaders than women, they've got to help and work with us to solve these problems. They've got to be aware of it and to do something about it. If they see, which they can, because they can see it in their budgeting, that there is a significant gap between what women in the school earn and what men earn, then surely, surely they'd want to do something about that. So if it's complacency, I hope looking at their own school picture would shake them out of that complacency. So it certainly did me. Right, thanks for that. That's really interesting and, and a good call to arms as well. Just turning to Women Ed and the mission that's on the website. So I'll just read it. I know you know it, but it's um, for, for uh, people listening. Our mission is for more women in education to have the choice to progress on their leadership journey. What are the choices for women at the moment? And what other choices would you like to see built into the system? 
Well, what we like built into the system is that there are no barriers to women becoming leaders if that's what they want to do. And the word choice there from the women ed perspective is because we're not going to we don't want to force anybody to be a leader. But if a woman wants to take the leadership path in education, there are barriers in her way. And what we want to do as a for individual women, for the organisations in which they work and for the system, we want to work to remove those barriers. Individual women can make a difference for themselves. For millennia, women have been socialised into quite specific gender stereotypes, as have men, of course, and those stereotypes aren't helping either men or women. So women can hold themselves back, not because of something that needs fixing in a woman, but because of understanding the stereotypes and the, the social perspective in which we work, the gendered perspective. So we want to help women and we do that by having a, a community of women, women who stand up for other women, which makes a difference for us. And we do that by mentoring, coaching, lots of conversations, lots of writing, lots of blogs for people to read. So they realize they're not the only one thinking that they can't be a leader or they're not going to be able to progress in education. But we also want to tackle the system with it. So we share the data whenever we can. Um, we have four very specific campaigns, which is to have more women leaders, to have more women leaders of an ethnic heritage, because that data is shocking as well. We want to advocate for flexible working, because one of the barriers to a lot of women is that obviously they have families, very many women, and they have choices they have to make as they move through their career. You said I had a, quite a traditional route through leadership, didn't you, at, at the beginning? I and did. I often, and what I meant by that was you came through the head of department, deputy yeah. head, head teacher route. Well, no, I did do that. I went up the traditional career ladder. Absolutely. And I think that happened for me because I didn't have children. So I, I kind of could do the traditional journey a man would tend to do. Whereas for the majority of women who have families, they seem to have a, a career where they come onto the ladder, they go off the ladder, they have to find a sideways ladder, they go up, they go down. And that seems to affect their overall leadership journey. Well, it shouldn't, should it? In education, where we are supporting families and their children, how can it be hard, harder, to be a teacher if you're a parent. I mean, we've got to look at the how bonkers that is in education. And we need to look at the strategies to do that. And there's a moral reason and a pragmatic reason to do that. So we should treat women equitably. We hear terrible, terrible stories still of some of the questions people get asked in an interview, which are discriminatory and illegal and they're too frightened to raise them because they don't know how to raise a question such as, 
you can't ask me if I'm going to be pregnant again. You can't ask me that. But they just freeze because they know they shouldn't be asked that question. So there's a moral reason that women should be able to have the choice to lead if they want to. And schools need to work on the systems and the approaches to help them a wide range of flexible working practices, which can be very developmental for other people in the school as well. So it's a win-win. But the pragmatic reason also is we haven't got enough leaders. When people ask me, I say, tell me, look, it's awful. I can't get a head of department. I can't get a middle leader. I can't get a deputy head. I've got calls into Australia to see if I can bring anybody over. And I say, but they're sat in your staff room. The people that you want to lead in the future are in your staff room. And yet we put barriers in the way. We don't pay them equitably. We don't give them the developmental opportunities to help them be gain leadership skills. And a lot of schools still put significant barriers in the way of anyone wanting to work in a flexible way and lead. We've got to do something about that. And that was the the other gap that emerged as women had developed when we started trying to explore why is this happening? And so our campaigns, campaigns are underrepresentation of women and particularly women of an ethnic heritage, that we need to advocate for flexible working practices and the gender pay gap. And everything else women does seems to flow from all of those key components. Can we just pick up on one of the campaigns or I'm not sure if it is a campaign actually Vivian or whether it's that there's a photograph on your and I, and I see this on Twitter a lot as well but the photograph on your website is a group of mainly women who are holding up signs saying 10% braver so what is what is it this about 10% why not 12% or 2% braver what's the 10% about? Well it started at our very first on conference in 2015 Sue Cowley um, opened the day for us and spoke about the importance of women leaders and I seem to remember there were fluffy handcuffs came into quite a bit of that conversation but I can't remember the rest of it but it was really fabulous we really thought it was a great way to kick off uh, an unconventional day and she told us the story that her friend had told her that whenever things got really hard for her all she needed to do was just be 10% braver, just take a small step forward. And for some people that passed them by, but for others on that first day, but for others, it resonated significantly because women do feel they lack confidence. Very many women feel they lack confidence and the call to just be a little bit braver, take one step forward seemed to resonate because they thought they could do that. They couldn't do something that might be life-changing because they had responsibilities, uh, that this, this, and that. All the reasons women give themselves in their head for why they can't do things. But they could do one thing. And that grew and grew and grew and obviously became part of the titles of, of our books because when we said, asked the community, what should we call our first book? 
that came through loud and clear. Whatever we called it, it had to have B10% breaker in it. And it's weird on Twitter now because I see people who are in the women ed community just saying, I'm going to be 10% braver today because they've picked it up from somewhere else as well. So it doesn't only resonate with women, <laughs> but it does resonate so much with our community. And of course, what we do now, which hopefully you've seen on Twitter, is if somebody says they're going to be 10% braver, then we ask them in what way. And at first there were huge gulps going, oh, I don't want to tell you because I might not get the job. Or it's not, tell us, what are you doing? So they started to tell us and the rest of the community celebrate. And women aren't used to that. The women in our schools aren't used to being celebrated and praised for what they do as women and as leaders. And, and so the community loves it. And so now they go for it. Absolutely go for it, as you, as you will have seen. And there are some spectacular examples of impact as a result, which we can call up on Twitter whenever we need to. And when I get a bit of space, maybe in the next lockdown, I am trying to be optimistic. Uh, in the next lockdown, I am finally going to write a paper on the impact of five years of women ed with all of the types of impact for individuals, organisations, the system, and also the specific examples of showing what women can do when they are encouraged, supported, tapped on the shoulder, shoved, pushed, <laughs> coached. You might have to do all of those because we've got a millennia of gendered thinking to break down. So if that's what women need in our schools, then why don't, why doesn't that happen? And it can't happen the way men get developed, which is a tap on the shoulder. Uh, I think you should apply for this. That doesn't happen enough for women. Yeah, and so, indeed, and I've seen uh, the power of that 10% braver on Twitter, as you say, it's, it really is inspiring watching lots of people uh, coming in. Uh, and it's, it's Twitter in its most positive Oh yes. Aspect. Oh yes. We know it can be a bit poisonous at times, Twitter, but uh, it's it's such a positive movement seeing people just getting behind other people who want to try something, go for something. Uh, really great. Really. Oh well, it's I, lovely that other people can see that as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Such a good public forum. Well, you mentioned confidence there, and I noticed that the Women Admission Statement has eight C's. Confidence is one of them. The others are clarity, communication, connection collaboration, community, challenge and change. How should the system develop these in leaders and in particular women leaders? We're a values-driven organisation, as you say. Although those characteristics, those principles, those values drive everything we do and influence our thinking in what we do. Quite a lot of those values are what would be gendered as female leadership values community, collaboration, communication. But we put clarity in as well, which isn't often highlighted as a feminised word. That's quite a masculinised word. So we look for what we think women need in the system, the kind of values that will encourage women to show their abilities and their expertise. And we would like those values to drive more of the system. I referred at the beginning about collaboration across schools, really inspired me as a head. And I think that 
collaboration rather than competition is something that our system is insufficiently doing. It's not just this system. It, you know, we felt when Federation started in Surrey that there wasn't enough collaboration and the marketization of education had brought competition. So, you know, these things go in cycles. I appreciate that. But it shouldn't go in cycles in terms of the moral principles that you hold as a school leader or as a system leader. So we also use those values to structure themes around in our events, in our blogs, in our writings, in our books, very definitely. The, the latest book um, coming out in uh, middle of this month, very shortly, which is why I've been quite frazzled over the last few months, is a, a collection of women's stories of how they had to be 10% braver, why they had to do that and what they did in being 10% braver and what that felt like and what that taught them. And they're passing that on to other women. And I think there's some really interesting things for school leaders there where each chapter explores the nature of the women and values that helped them to be brave and help them to deal with tragedy, help them to deal with rejection, failing, help them to deal with the kinds of things that I sometimes think school leaders forget. Not all, I'm not lumping everybody in, but there are too many school leaders forget that their, their staff are human beings and they have lives and they have challenges. And sometimes they need looking after and it doesn't happen enough. And we think if those values came more into how leadership worked at the moment, um, we would have fewer people leaving the teaching profession and we might be actually able to attract more people into it. Did that answer your question? I wasn't sure. Yeah, I was, I was, I was interested. I think it did because we, we were just talking about how the, the eight Cs get built into the system. And I, I think you've explored that well. Just, just to say about the book, by the way, you said it was out this month? December the 15th, it's published. Yes. Just in time for Christmas. Fantastic. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm just hoping people get their books in time for Christmas because <laughs> uh, I think people have bought a lot of them as Christmas presents. We advocate that women buy their most significant male leader a copy of the book as well, because lots of the chapters help school leaders to understand ways in which they can help their colleagues through these difficult periods or these celebratory moments. You know, how can they champion them and share in their pleasure in that way? Sounds great, look forward to getting a copy. Just a, a couple more things about Women Ed. The first one is that it, you describe it as a grassroots movement. Why is that important? Well, I, I don't like this phrase, but I think people understand what it means. It's bottom up. So, while we've got a core team of strategic leaders, we respond to what women want and need. And our networks are structured in a way that we hope they get as close as possible to where women actually live and work so that they're responding to the needs of a locality or a region, to national needs, because then our networks come together and share thought. And then now, Again, this is the other bonkers thing. 
now globally. And so we try those three levels of the as working with your local women leaders, working nationally, working globally, we hope are giving us a really very wide perspective on the issues for women. And sadly, very sadly, they're very similar all over the world. We want to try and galvanize that voice of women and male leaders who want to support their colleagues, that they are part of women ed. I think they sometimes think they can't be as if it's a women only group, but it absolutely isn't. But we need to collaborate and work together to make that difference. And all we ever wanted to do was give women a voice on Twitter. That's all, all we set out to do, because women were being silenced on Twitter. They still are now, but not if they're in our community, they're not. But now we're working on a, a global scale. It's still grassroots. We're all volunteers. Everybody who's a women and leader, whichever level, give their time on top of their day job because they're passionate about we must now try and make the difference because we don't want our daughters to be experiencing this again and again. We have to bring about the change and we have to do that for the future teachers and our future daughters and sons because they suffer from the gender stereotyping as well, as do men. Do you think you have suffered from gender stereotyping? Um, yes, being six foot six and, uh, <laughs> and large with it. Yes, I do, definitely. I think it's, uh, I'm delighted to hear that the, the that women ed is also for men. I think that's a, a particularly important message um, at the moment. And, and one of the reasons, if you don't mind me saying so, why it's really good that we, the two of us can have a conversation about this as well, because I think it is a, an important and powerful message too. Also a message received about the tendency on Twitter uh, for some people to get silenced. And I'm not at all surprised to hear that, unfortunately, the majority of those are probably women as well. I always ask everybody the last question, which is when you're not leading, when you're not being at the forefront of the various different organisations that you work for, what do you do to relax, Vivian? What do you do to take off the, the mantle of leadership? I read. Sadly, I find it harder to do as much reading as I used to. I was a voracious reader because co cognitively, after having had um, treatment for cancer, cognitively, I can't read for hours on end anymore. I just can't hold it in my head sufficiently, which is sad. So I read in lots of bursts. So I read, um, I talk, I meet people, talk with people now zoom with people if it is now to keep in contact with everyone literally every day I talk with my sister because she and I are best friends and she lives in the northeast and I'm down in the southeast so that's how we communicate and she helps me relax a lot because if I start saying oh, I'm doing this and this just whoop 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 stop <laughs> so that relaxes me spending time with my family relaxes me um, and we've had a lot of time to do that and it's that's been lovely I've enjoyed that and ordinarily when I can I like to go to the theatre I like to swim I like to go on holiday travel that relaxes me so I'm so looking forward to being able to do that again
my sister and I were supposed to go to St. Lucia last June and then it was moved to September. So now it's gone to next June again. And if we could go back there, that's our way of relaxing together. We do that each year if we can, because that makes a difference to us. So travel is an important thing for me. Fantastic. And if you could leave one last message at the very end of this podcast for women leaders, what would it be? Two women leaders or four women leaders? Four women leaders. Uh, four women leaders. Remember that your colleagues are human beings, all of you. Um, be compassionate for others in the sector in which you work. But most importantly, be compassionate for yourself. And also, as part of that compassion, get involved with Women Ed on Twitter because it will help you to remember why you came into education in the first place. That's a great message. Thank you so much for giving us your time, Vivian. It's been really fascinating listening to your journey and also the journey of Women Ed too. It's just been a, a really interesting opportunity to, to talk about part of the system, which I suspect gets hidden on occasion, and to really think about that as well. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for a really fascinating conversation, Rob. Thank you very much. The Ask Gold Leadership Podcast. 